Hi, and thanks for listening to Here and Now Anytime. If you like the show, please make sure you follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for Here and Now Anytime. And if you've already subscribed, tell a friend about us. Now here's the show. He was clearly not in his right mind, yet he was handled with such force. Body cam footage shows LAPD repeatedly tasing a black man who later died. Friday, January 13th, and this is Here and Now Anytime from NPR and WBUR Boston. I'm Chris Bentley. Today on the show, a reality TV star's criminal prosecution becomes a storyline on her own show. And we hear from an Arizona farmer who lost his water supply because of drought restrictions in the Southwest. But first, 31-year-old Keenan Anderson is dead after police in Los Angeles knelt on his neck and repeatedly stunned him with a taser. Anderson was a cousin to Patrice Cullors, one of the co-founders of the group Black Lives Matter. And now his family's attorney, whom we heard at the top, says they're suing the city. Robert Garova has been reporting on this for KPCC in L.A. He spoke to Scott Tong earlier today. The LAPD have released body cam footage from the incident January 3rd on Venice Boulevard in L.A., and we're going to warn listeners this audio is going to be hard to listen to. Initially, Keenan Anderson on the video walks away from a car accident. The first officer approaches. Anderson speaks calmly, and then he tries to get away, and it gets chaotic, and soon several officers are standing over him. Let's listen. They're trying to just for me. They're trying to just Stop it. Stop it, I'm going to tease you. Okay, stop it or I'm going to tase you. Stop it or I'm going to tase you. Stop resisting. Please, stop resisting. Please. 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 Robert, at this point, what is happening in the middle of the road? Uh, Well, officers are are allegedly, you know, trying to to apprehend um, uh, Anderson, um, you know, after he was allegedly involved in uh, a traffic collision. Um, you know, within the space of about 30 seconds, uh, he's tased four times by, by an LAPD officer. Um, you know, it, what's interesting about that video is, is in the totality of it, uh, if you watch it, Anderson appears really distraught, um, you know, before things get more violent towards him. Um, you know, he says at one point that someone is trying to kill him. Um, as you, as you heard there, he says, uh, you know, they're trying to George Floyd me, you know, but what we know is that he was, he he was tased multiple times within the space of 30 seconds, you know, just hours later, he goes into cardiac arrest, uh, at a Santa Monica hospital and died. Um, you know, the LAPD has, has, uh, said that, that a preliminary toxicology report said that he may have had, uh, cocaine and, and cannabis in his system. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, when you look at the video, there's, there's obviously this very violent interaction that goes on and, you know, within the space of hours, um, Anderson is dead. Do we know why the police officers chose to use the taser, the stun gun? Has the LAPD, has the LAPD explained why? No. Um, you know, what, what happened Wednesday um, was that the LAPD chief, Michael Moore, uh, released three uh, videos from a particularly deadly week, uh, the first, uh, you know, for the very first three days of this year. Um, and, you know, he, he didn't go into any depth as to, you know, why a, a taser was used in this situation other than saying that, you know, there's, there's no restriction on the number of times uh, per, you know, policy that officers can use. 
uh, a taser, um, you know, so there was that, but, you know, th this, this, uh, this death, um, happened in the, in the same three days that, uh, we saw two LAPD sh uh, fatal shootings. Um, so, you know, you have, uh, the LAPD and definitely, uh, Chief Moore, um, you know, releasing three, uh, very, graphic, um, uh, hard to watch uh, videos and with, uh, all of which, you know, mm -hmm. from incidents that happened within the space of three days. Yeah. And, and Robert, I, I understand, uh, the city of Los Angeles has mental health teams designed to respond with police officers. Were they involved in this case with Anderson? No, they, they weren't involved with Anderson. I confirmed that uh, with LAPD yesterday. Um, they said that actually they were never requested. You know, they're called smart teams. They're essentially um, a team made up of a, of a mental health clinician from our local department of mental health uh, and an armed officer from, from the LAPD. And, and there's, you know, the idea is that they go in and they have more training to de-escalate mental health situations. Um, you know, if you watch the Anderson tape, you know, from a layman, it, it appears that he's having some sort of mental health uh, issue. Um, it, so it, it's not clear why maybe an officer didn't, you know, call in that request. But we do know at this point that, mm -hmm. but, you know, both in the Anderson case and, you know, the, the two uh, fatal LAPD shootings, which were also, um, you know, from family members and, and um, from uh, police chief Moore's admission, you know, himself, um, mental health related. So, but in none of those cases were one of those special teams called. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, we will certainly await more from the investigation. That's Robert Garova, mental health reporter for KPCC in Los Angeles. Robert, thank you. Thank you. After the break, careful what you say on TV. A judge recently sentenced Real Housewives of Salt Lake City star Jennifer Shaw to six and a half years in prison for fraud. Peter O'Dowd has more on that story coming up. Jennifer Shaw has flaunted her wealth on the reality show Real Housewives of Salt Lake City, but now she's admitted some of that money came from a telemarketing racket that stole from elderly people. Shaw pled guilty to one count of conspiracy to commit wire fraud in connection with what the Department of Justice called a nationwide telemarketing fraud scheme that victimized thousands of innocent people. She was recently sentenced to six and a half years in prison and ordered to pay millions of dollars in fines. And Bravo TV broadcast a lot of the legal drama that led up to her sentencing. Prosecutors even used this clip from season two against her in court. The only thing I'm guilty of is being Shaw-mazing. Well, now Jennifer Shaw is going to prison. Emily D. Baker is a legal analyst and a former L.A. deputy district attorney. Her podcast is The Emily Show, and she's been following this case closely. Emily, welcome. Thank you. So glad to be here. So this week, the season finale aired, and it ended with Shaw's guilty plea on camera. Can you just briefly explain the case against her and how it played out on TV? 
The case against Jen Shaw was a two-count indictment, but it came at the end of rounds of prosecution into a very large nationwide telemarketing scheme where people would be called up and sold online businesses or services or products that they didn't need and weren't using and then were continued to be sold things that attached to those programs and business opportunities until there was essentially no money left. So when she was indicted, it was for conspiracy to commit wire fraud and conspiracy to commit money laundering. And then she pled just to the one count of conspiracy to commit wire fraud. The thing that was so stunning about this is when the news broke of her arrest, we also knew that Bravo cameras were rolling. We see celebrity dramas play out on reality TV all the time, but have you ever seen anything quite like this, the legal drama playing out on TV? I've never seen anything like this where you get a 360-degree view of a case. We're watching it break in the news. People are talking about it online. And then you also know that the cast is being filmed. The arrest might have been filmed. The search, the feds descending on a parking lot where all the housewives are. And then months later when it goes to air, we get to watch the inside conversations of what that day was like for everyone who was being filmed. And we see Jen talking about her case on the show over and over and over, professing her innocence that this is all falsely being accused and that she Mm. will be vindicated in the end after trial. And then she turns around and pleads guilty. It was stunning. What was her motivation about being so public on TV throughout the whole ordeal? Did she think for some reason that it would help her? I wonder if Jen thought that the public support behind her would change the minds of prosecutors, which just tells me that Jen Shaw probably doesn't actually know any prosecutors. Professing your innocence on TV can be used in court saying, look, Your Honor, she doesn't have any remorse and has professed that this is not something she was involved in. We should just Mm. go to trial on this case. So it was very interesting to watch how boldly she talked about her case as opposed to saying, this is a pending criminal prosecution I would love to tell you more about it, but my lawyers have told me that I can't. Just blame your lawyers. You're paying them. It's fine. (laughs) Well, prosecutors must have loved that she was talking so freely on TV. You know, at one point, um, she said that the show was edited to present a false sense of who she really was. Do you think her image on TV affected the case against her? It's so interesting because we often see housewives blame Bravo editing on social media and saying that their storyline's not really them, but we've never seen it in a federal criminal trial, so this was a first for me. I think prosecutors had more of a glimpse into Jen Shaw's life than they would otherwise because they have a camera crew in her closet showing all the things that they would then come in and have taken for a forfeiture, um, $6.5 million of forfeiture. So they have more of an insight into Jen Shaw, but they also have her on television with a co-conspirator, Stuart Smith, talking about him working for her business, which makes it very hard if she went to trial to testify that this wasn't someone intricately connected to her business because Bravo editors aren't making up that these two people are spending this time together on camera. But we also saw the judge set all that aside at sentencing and saying, I'm not sentencing a reality TV personality that we see. I'm sentencing the Jen Shaw that's standing here before me and really bringing it back to what did this person do? And without taking any responsibility away from what Jennifer Shaw did, do you think that Bravo bears some scrutiny for the way that it capitalizes on these storylines? I think 
Bravo is a bit of a mirror of how interested the rest of us are, because I imagine they wouldn't follow these storylines if the ratings weren't good. So if Bravo bears some responsibility for airing it, I think all of us also bear a little bit for Hmm. watching all of it because we want to see how it all plays out. But I do have to wonder, would Jen Shaw have been cast on Real Housewives if it weren't for the very lavish lifestyle she was portraying that we now know was through ill-gotten gains from fraud schemes perpetrated on mostly elderly women? Legal analyst and former L.A. Deputy District Attorney Emily D. Baker, her podcast is The Emily Show. Emily, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. After the break, Peter talks to farmers in Arizona who've had their water cut off as a result of drought restrictions. Stick around. This week, Arizona Governor Katie Hobbs told lawmakers that it's time to get serious about water. Barring a miracle from nature, It will likely get worse before it gets better. The governor was referring to the crisis on the Colorado River, which gives life to 40 million people in seven western states. The reservoirs are dangerously low, and now the unrelenting drought officially triggered a second round of cuts for Arizona. On January 1st, the Colorado River Tier 2 mandatory water cuts went into effect meaning Arizona will lose 21% of our water that comes from the most important river in the country. People like Jace Miller knew the cuts were coming. One thing I've uh, lost a lot of the last couple years is sleep and, and peace of mind. Miller is a young man with an enviable beard. His family has farmed a rural stretch of desert between Phoenix and Tucson for generations. My great-great-grandfather homesteaded a little over 100 years ago. It took him two years to actually clear the desert, and uh, he began officially farming in 1919. So we've been here in the state for a little over 100 years farming. But the family business took a turn last January when Miller lost 60% of the river water needed to irrigate his hay crops. And then, on the first day of 2023, hundreds of farmers just like him in Pinal County lost every last drop. Who loses access to the river in times of severe drought is a matter of where you live and what you do with the water. So far, cities have been mostly spared, but the rules of the river require users with the lowest priority to take the first hit, which means farmers in central Arizona are the first to really feel this crisis. That's a good vantage point. To get a better view of the problem, we have to stand in the bed of Miller's muddy pickup truck. A cold breeze comes down off the mountain. The scenery is stunning. Well, no, it is. I mean, it, you know. Saguaro cactus, like the mountains, the clouds, it's it's just. It's it's picturesque. (laughs) It really is. Arizona is, it's it's mind-blowing. It's breathtaking. The problem isn't the scenery. It's the canal in front of us. Locals call it the CAP, the Central Arizona Project, an engineering marvel that brings Colorado River water to cities and farms more than 300 miles from the source. For three decades, it's been diverted off this canal to nearby farms. Unfortunately, this water is no longer going to make it to my farm ground for the foreseeable future. The challenge is, though, that your farm is 
the low man on the totem pole, so to speak, right? You were the last to get this Colorado River water, essentially, and, and you're the, the first, first to lose it. it. Yep. Well, and, you know, unfortunately right now, it is extremely biased to the American farmer and rancher in Arizona. We're taking the brunt of the, the cuts throughout the Colorado. I mean, there's a lot of other people that pull a substantially higher amount of water out of the Colorado that have received no cuts. And that's unfortunate because we feel uh, like the Lone Ranger, the last man standing, you know, uh, we could see a, a five to 10% cut across the entire upper and lower basin. That way we could all better prepare and be better stewards of it. But instead, 100% of the cuts are coming from us currently. And that's very unfortunate. So what are you gonna do? I mean, you, you don't get water from this canal anymore. Uh, it's a big deal. How do you grow your crops? What do you do? So we're currently utilizing our aquifers, our groundwater. We're pulling water from 500 to 1,000 feet out of the ground and pumping it into a canal and sending it to our farms. A huge negative is we're cutting our farming acreage. So we're, we're hoping it's only going to be about a 50% cut but it might end up being more like 60 to 65% of our acres we're going to leave fallow and be unable to farm. That's a lot. I mean, that's that's your livelihood. Yes. No, it is. And, and we still have all of our uh, infrastructure, our equipment, and our employees. Thankfully, by the grace of God, and I don't know what else, we've been able to retain all of our employees and our equipment. That's going to be kind of the last fail-safe for us is to sell equipment and get rid of employees so we do not want to downsize in that aspect you know hell i'll take a pay cut before i start letting guys go i wonder what you think the future holds because you have a short-term solution here you're going to pump groundwater to grow your crops right but 30 years ago about when the colorado river cap system came through this area for the first time that was a huge issue farmers in this area were taking all the groundwater out and and you were running out of water so now what you know, if you're pumping more groundwater to supplement this river, it's a short-term Band-Aid, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And unfortunately, in today's society, we tend to look too short-term. You hit the nail on the head. We don't want to throw a Band-Aid on a bleeding wound. You know, we need to, we need to stop the flow of blood, and we need to suture it up, and we need to start healing. Um, What's the risk of pumping groundwater? So the risk, we know the risk because we experienced it before. So without this river water, we're gonna revert back to, to draining the aquifer and one day we're gonna see farmland drying up. It's about to get, it's about to become everybody's problem here shortly. Yeah, that's what I wanted to ask you. Do you think what's happening here in Pinal County, Arizona is sort of a harbinger of what's to come? I mean, everybody making major sacrifices along the entire river. No, it's, 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 the, it's the grand foreshadow. In literature, I mean, it's it's coming for everybody. They're in a run of tough years, and, and they're getting tougher at the moment. Paul Brierley runs a Center for Desert Agriculture at the University of Arizona. He agrees the entire region needs to watch what's happening here. Losing this much water means 40% or more of Pinal County's cotton, barley, and alfalfa fields will go fallow. Brierley says that is a huge blow to any farm. It may have been in the family for generations, and, and now if you've got all these expenses and no chance to grow crops, um, you, you, you don't stay in business very long doing that. That's a reality that Jace Miller can't help but consider. Back inside the truck, he drives a few miles of rural highway to get back home. Along the way, a patchwork of farms and empty fields. Miller points out his window, 
one of his crops, a 30-acre carpet of green. So the crop that's currently in front of us, this is kind of a winter pasture mix. It's a grain rotation crop. Outside my window, another farmer's fallowed field. Dirt and dried up scrub that will soon break free from the soil and become tumbleweed. I get out to take a closer look at an empty irrigation ditch between the two fields. A couple of days ago, in 2022, in December, you might have had Colorado River water in here, and, and, and now? Correct. No, groundwater. Yeah, you can see the watermark, the stain from previous years. It's pretty high up on the ditch. It's probably three-quarters of the ditch. Um, so, you know, it was ran full and fully productive. That water line is going to be cut in half this year, and uh, it's only going to be well water and no canal water, unfortunately. But the groundwater he's getting this year won't be nearly enough, which is more than enough to cause all kinds of anxiety. Miller is just 31, but his back hurts so badly that he can hardly get out of the truck. He's got a baby at home, a family legacy on the line. It is a lot of stress. It's work-related. I mean, I've seen it in a, in a physical and a mental way. I mean, the last few years have been just, it's been pretty arduous for us. and. It's only getting worse. It is. It is. We don't see any light at the end of the tunnel yet. It's only going to continue to decline. Uh, and we've already seen it over the last two years. We've seen probably 10 different farming families locally here that have retired and quit, sold out, uh, primarily due to the fact that they don't believe that this is going to be a way of life that they're going to be able to continue in the future. And people go, oh, 10 people, 10 families. That's not much. Well, in this industry, it is. Ten families in a small county like this is is a lot. Well, is that what is keeping you up at night? Because you have a fear that you could be the 11th? Yeah. No, that's probably one of my greatest fears. It's the, the chance of failure that over 100 years of my family's blood, sweat, and tears and hard work, my grandfather's and my grandmother's, my father, my mother, you know, my ancestors, that it could die on my watch. That's I live with that every day. And I don't want to let my ancestors, my, my family down. My, you know, I, I want to be able to continue this legacy because it is a glorious, beautiful way of life. But there's little doubt that way of life is at risk. The federal government has already told the seven states along the river that even deeper cuts must come to keep the river flowing. And soon, more farmers like Jace Miller from Arizona and even California could see the crisis arrive at their own front door. Make sure you're subscribed to Here and Now anytime to keep up with Peter's reporting from Arizona and elsewhere. And head to hereandnow.org right now to see photos from the farms where that water's been cut off. And while you're there, check out the rest of our stories. We've got conversations on how mussels could help slow coastal erosion. Our weekly politics roundtable has the latest on the special counsel appointed to investigate how President Biden handled classified documents. And as Verizon retires 3G service, many mostly elderly people who use jitterbug phones are left with no signal. So the thing about the jitterbug flip phone and why it really catered to the older older customer is that it really was a two-in-one cell phone and medical alert device. So that function also would is no longer working after the shutdown of 3G. You can find all that at hereandnow.org. Today's stories were produced by Jill Ryan, Grace Griffin, and Peter O'Dowd. Our editors are Gabe Bullard, Todd Munt, Shiko Fayori, and Kat Welch. Technical direction from Caleb Green and Mike Moschetto. Theme music by me, Mike, and Max Liebman. 
Our digital producers are Grace Griffin and Allison Hagen. The executive producer of Here and Now is Carlene Watson. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend, and we'll be back Monday. Thank you.